You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello, everybody. That might sound like a little bit of a, an uplift in my voice, and there's a very good reason for that. You might know, actually, because the quality of this audio might sound better. I certainly hope so. But it has been two long years since I've sat in the studio with my good friend and the voice of Middle East Analysis, Dr. Harry Hagopian, opposite me. Literally opposite me, not through a computer screen. How are you, Harry? I'm fine, James. Thank you very much. And you're absolutely right. It feels a little bit strange because I'd become used to the idea of recording Middle East analysis with you once a month uh, via computers. You're in one place and I'm in another place. And now it's back uh, to the old days, as it were. and The good old days. The good old days, if you want to call them <laughs> such. And uh, here we are facing each other, looking at each other, which I think always helps in an interview, in a conversation, because you basically see the reactions of the person sitting in front of you. Mm. And you can then measure your questions or your answers accordingly. Yeah, you can look at me as if I'm bonkers if I say the wrong thing, <laughs> which is quite helpful, I must say. But it is a delight to be back face to face. And it's a region we love, Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions. But it's a region that seems in eternal turmoil. We're always talking about this, whether it's violence, instability, uncertainty. And we, we've got much to talk about today, the various powwows and summits that have been going on throughout the whole region in recent times, particularly in April, interestingly, and what that means, what that means to relations, what that means to Israel's relations with its near and, and not quite so near neighbours. But first of all, I'm going to ask you that straightforward question of the MENA landscape. Bring us up to date with the MENA landscape as it stands now. Uh-huh. Well, uh, James, you're absolutely right. There's a lot that's been going on. I can't think when things have been quiet in the Middle East, North Africa region, what I call my backyard, as it were. But as you and a lot of the listeners, or at least the faithful regular listeners know, by training, by education, by discipline, I'm a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But gradually, that shifted a little bit. My legal can my legal training as well as my work in the ecumenical world led me to Israel-Palestine, the conflict. Yeah. Until then, I was blissfully unaware of it, except what uh, everybody else knows about it. Yes, that there is a problem there, that they keep killing each other, that they keep fighting each other, and that the in that Arab-Israeli context, Palestine was yeah. the root cause in, in some sense. So my journey politically started uh, with Israel-Palestine, with that conflict. I earned my stripes, really, from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then, after that, when we had the revolutionary uprisings in 2010-2011, which started with Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, then I started looking at the region a little bit more holistically and not only focusing on what is happening in that tiny little space called Israel-Palestine, but looking at a much, much broader Middle East, North Africa as well, North Africa being countries like Morocco, like Tunisia, like Libya, like Algeria. And I became more and more interested in analyzing and trying to find out what is happening 
in this part of the world beyond and above Palestine. Mm. And then, of course, the third phase of my training and education, if you want, politically, which took me a little bit away from law and legal work, was the blockade against Qatar by three GCC countries, the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. And then I became increasingly more involved with that. Now, why was I involved with all those political issues, starting with Israel-Palestine via the MENA region and leading up to the Gulf? Because I am one of those naive persons living on the face of this planet, which believes in justice and peace. And people always joke that when you're young, you're left of the political spectrum, you believe in ideals like justice, like peace, like equality. But as you grow older and more jaundiced, you realize that the world is not like that really. And then you start shifting your priorities and your understanding of what makes the world tick. But we keep that wonderful word hope, don't we? We certainly keep the wonderful word hope. And hope is a very wonderful word now. Because we are, as Christians, we are also leading up. And I am uh, a practicing Christian, so we are leading up to Easter, which is this, the uh, apotheosis of hope, in a sense. But this is basically what happened. And whether I looked at Israel-Palestine, whether I looked at the MENA region, or whether I looked at the Gulf, no matter how much depth I acquired in my political analysis, I realized that Palestine was the big motivator for the Arab masses. Mm. No matter whether you were dealing with Syria, with Iraq, with issues in any part of that neighborhood, my backyard, as I said, Palestine was always there in the consciousness of the Arab masses. And I identify the masses rather than the rulers. There was, and still is, in my opinion, a guttural connection between the ordinary Arab people across this huge, vast region and the issue, the question of Palestine. For them, it represents something over and above sheer politics. Now, if you even look, going back to the 1990s, there was something called the Saudi Initiative which basically meant that all the Arab countries represented in the Arab League offered Israel the option of you sort out the Israel-Palestine conflict, you have Israel and Palestine as two independent states, and we will all en masse recognize you as the Jewish state. Now, all this has been part and parcel of my political upbringing and my political training. But now things have changed. Why have things changed? For many, many reasons. If we start from the last one, the blockade against Qatar is thankfully over. Qatar proved itself, not only because it is hosting the world football uh, in world Cup. Uh, Cup in November, December, but because it managed to resist the blockade and actually improved its performance as a consequence of it. And now there has been uh, a reconciliation and things are far, far better amongst the six GCC countries which have realized at long last that it is in their interest not to rely on outside 
partners, but to rely on themselves in order to better their realities on the ground. Then you have the MENA region, where all these people in the first phase and the second wave of the what I call the revolutionary uprisings, the second wave being countries like Algeria, like Sudan, uh, who were involved like Lebanon, people realize that, yes, we want dignity, but we also want food. Mm. And people thought in those demonstrations, those street protests, they thought that when they went out saying we want, actually the slogans included dignity and uh, food together. When we are talking about dignity, we're also talking about food. And they suddenly realized that food is not available at the end of those street protests very easily. And therefore, the whole, the whole idea, the whole concept of those protests, those uprisings, shifted, morphed, in addition to the fact that if you want to challenge very well-rooted, autocratic uh, rulers, then you have to have an alternative to offer the people. And if you go and say, I don't like you, but I don't know what else I can propose. No one's that, listening. No, no, that is not going to go down well. So all this to come to the point that we then come to Trump as president in the USA and now Biden as president and all that has been happening in the region leading up most recently to the Ukraine-Russia war. And then those Arab rulers decided that it is in their interest to make sure that those street protests do not happen. And it is also in their interests to not look so much at Palestine anymore, and I'm talking about the political establishment. I'm not talking about the masses. For the masses, Palestine still counts very, very strongly. They decided, you know, it's no longer Palestine. It's Iran that's the nemesis. It's Iran that is the foe. It's Iran that's the bogey. It's Iran that's the elephant in the room. And therefore, the regional order changed so that it no longer was all those Arab countries having one thing in common, which is Palestine, gradually being replaced by another thing they have in common and another phobia they have, which is Iran and what is Iran up to and how will it affect us. So on the one hand, stifle, smother, put down the protests in the streets because they challenge our authority, our right to rule. And on the other hand, forget about Palestine focus on Iran, which is why everybody now is talking about Iran, this, Iran, that, JCPOA agreement, this, that, and hardly anybody is talking about the Palestinian situation. And that is where we are today. And that is how the whole region has changed very much knowingly by certain countries in the region, whether in the MENA or the Gulf, who have basically poured zillions and zillions of dollars into this process of shifting the narrative from Palestine to Iran as being the major concern. And you can see that by the alliances that some Arab countries are sort of forming with Israel and the fact that people now no longer instinctively as rulers, not as masses, instinctively bring up Palestine as being the example, the political case par excellence when it comes to the Arab world. So I suppose the obvious question is, uh, and I know there's a distinction between the, the masses and the political view here, the obvious question is, 
what are the consequences of downgrading the Israel-Palestinian situation on, on the global stage? The consequences of downgrading it, and Trump tried his best to downgrade it, he and uh, Prime Minister at the time, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, did their best to rubbish, to remove Palestine from the agenda. Trump was doing with Netanyahu what Golda Meir, one of the previous prime ministers of Israel, said, Palestine, what Palestine? Palestinians, what Palestinians? They were trying to do that, and they are... He was doing it to the day he was pretty much booted out of the White House and Joe Biden came in. And Joe Biden came in promising all sorts of things that would bring the Palestinians some hope, you use the word hope, into their future. Mm -hmm. But he also is not really delivering much. Words are nice, but actions are much, much nicer. So this is why at the moment two things happen. The Palestinians should get their house in order, and it is in disarray. You've got a geriatric running the Palestinian Authority, and it is time, with all due respect for his uh, legacy, for his contribution over decades to the Palestinian liberation movement, it is time to move on. So they should think about how to reform their own backyard, how to reconcile Gaza with the West Bank, Ramallah with Gaza, instead of constantly fighting each other, whether knowingly or unknowingly. But at the same time, a consequence of that would be as the Palestinian situation is forgotten more and more in the consciousness of the world and the Arab world, then Israel becomes more arrogant in its occupation and in its management of Palestinian occupied territories and the Palestinians become angrier and even though they are weary, they are tired, they don't have too much energy to start a third intifada, but every now and then you see it, it's like a pressure cooker, you keep the lid on, the steam builds up until such time as too much steam in that pressure cooker, the lid is flung open and you have violence. You might give me daggers for this one because I haven't even suggested I might go there, but taking on board what you've said about Gaza City and Ramallah and bringing them a bit closer together. Is there any one person or faction that Hamas and the Palestinian Authority could accept in terms of political leadership? Yes, there are. There is more than one faction. There are factions that could be acceptable to both if the rulers in both spectrums of the Palestinian issue whether in Ramallah or in Gaza City, if they actually decide that the cause, the the Palestinian cause, the aspirations and the hopes of the Palestinians are far more important than their own chairs and their own power and their own, yes, and their own way of realizing that in order for Palestine to have a future, Palestinians should be given the right to uh, work for it. And it's it's happening, even though I sort of rubbish the situation because it's fading almost into political oblivion every now and then. And then a violence here, a summit meeting there, and it uh, resurges or reemerges. But what is happening is that the whole thing that I told you helped me gain my stripes at the beginning as a track to negotiator on Oslo and the DOP, 
Then the whole narrative was two-state solution. Now you ask the younger generations, those people who would look at me and think that I myself am pensionable already, <laughs> they no longer are looking at a two-state solution. They're looking at a one-state solution where it's no longer a question of having two states living next to each other, but one state with equal rights, which is anathema to a lot of right-wing Israelis and which is even harder to achieve than a two-state uh, solution. So there are things changing. NGOs are becoming more active. But the fact remains that on the macro-political level, people aren't talking that much about Palestine. We can see that from the schmoozing between, say, political leaders of Israel and the United Arab Emirates, all to do with how do we create a stand or a front against Iran, and nobody really gives a damn anymore about what is happening to the Palestinians who are boxed into an occupation in the OPT, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, or even those who are within the Green Line who are also themselves second-class citizens. What would you call a one-state solution in terms of... <laughs> What would it be titled that would be acceptable to both? I don't care what it could be. It could be called uh, anything. I mean, the question is not that. There have been a few exercises over the years about how do you put Palestine and Israel together mm. and come with one name. But that name is not the issue. The issue is I'm not even too much fussed if the name changes from Israel to something else so long as the Palestinians have equal rights and equal liability, rights and liabilities in a state that doesn't believe in apartheid as Israel does today, in a state where the settlers don't keep going into Palestinian territories and beating up shepherds who are basically there with their sheep grazing on their own lands, where you don't have people like who are in the Israeli Knesset who actually go after there is a spate of violence. Instead of trying to calm things down, they go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock in order to create more problems. And when people say that, oh, Human Rights Watch, Pet Salem, Amnesty International, those people are talking apartheid, they don't know what they're talking about. My answer is very simple. You either don't know at all what it means to live under apartheid, or you have got rose-tinted glasses, and therefore you only see one side of the argument and not both sides, because both sides have right points and wrong points, or alternatively, you're so polluted in your political thinking that you can't see that you cannot forever and a day smash one people and say, no, one is inferior and the other is superior. But much as we spent years, maybe decades, talking about a potential two-state solution, uh, only to be confounded by both the, the geography, the contiguous geography that we've talked about often, and the fact that the willingness was never quite strong enough for that to happen. Isn't it only a matter of time for the one-state solution to be viewed in the same way? And in fact, does it not suit, particularly Israel perhaps, a bit more to just keep this in a stagnant, frozen, you know, somewhere in the background? That is the whole point, James, when I told you about what Israel's policy is with its occupation. Under international law, and I'm now putting uh, my international law hat on again, this is an occupation. It's illegal. 
You can embellish it any which way you want. You can do a five, ten, five hundred agreements with other countries in the region. The fact remains that those territories are occupied territory and therefore are illegal under uh, international law. And what has happened is that as Israeli society has shifted increasingly more to the right and has become more arrogant because with that wall, a lot of people don't know what is happening on the other side of the wall, except when there is a spate of violence like we've seen recently, when suddenly it's a rude awakening and it's a question of what is happening. And then the what is happening whether by the right or the left of the political spectrum in Israel, is not, hold on, let's sit down and do some soul-searching. No, it's a question, oh, our repressive measures aren't enough. We should double them, triple them, do more to keep the Palestinians quiet. Come on, we don't have to look at Northern Ireland, we don't have to look at South Africa, we don't have to look at any of the other instances in the world to know that you can keep a people under the boot that long. And then there is a time when they say enough is enough. But at the moment, Israel is getting away with managing the occupation to its advantage, rather than seriously thinking, how do we return these territories? And how do we find a solution that would be suitable for both peoples? I don't want Israel to lose out. I don't want the Palestinians to lose out. I want them both to have something that they can show for it. And instead of doing that, what we have at the moment is more and more negative statements. Netanyahu went, Bennett came, everybody thought, oh, wonderful, this is going to be precursor for things to come. I was one of the first people in interviews to say things aren't going to change because it's the system. It's not necessarily only the people. But not only the system, you know, I take your point about international law and particularly with regard to, to the occupied territories. But isn't international law only worth a damn if it's enforceable? International law is worth a damn only if it's enforceable. And you're absolutely right. We're seeing that with the Ukraine, for instance, where yep. we keep on talking about, oh, we're going to take Putin and uh, Russia to the ICC. Exactly. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Well, they've never signed the protocol. So taking it to the ICC is pointless. But that is what worries me because it brings us back, unfortunately, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian context and the changing of the regional order where Palestine is being obliviated and Iran is being considered as the big bogey. Uh, and they don't help themselves, the Iranians, by the way, with some of their attitudes. But that be as it may, what is happening is that the management of the occupation is what is really, really basically creating the problems at the moment. And unless we come to a time when both sides will sit down and think carefully, and that has not been done, by the way, since Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. Now, a lot of people would sort of raise their eyebrows, James, by saying, what, Harry is mentioning Yitzhak Rabin's name? He is the guy who said, we're going to allow our army to break some Palestinian bones. Mm. Yes, but he was the last person who shook hands properly with Yasser Arafat at the time. Since then, things have been going downhill all the time. And where are we today? Today, we're at a stage where, as you yourself said in your own words, Bismarck's famous saying, might is right. 
And if might is right, then we know the consequences of that over two world wars, but also over many, many conflicts in the region. So that is where we are. The world order has shifted, but it only takes an attack here, a terror-related knifing there, to remind the world that you might go and schmooze as much as you want with the United Arab Emirates, with the Saudis, with the Egyptians, with the Tunisians, whatever. But at the end of the day, if you do not deal with your next-door neighbor who are divided from you by either a checkpoint or a machsom or a wall, you're never going to have the peace that you want. But that is something that hasn't sunk into the Israeli psyche, which still thinks that it can have its cake and eat it. Yeah, and you often describe yourself as a pessoptimist. And I describe <laughs> myself as a pessoptimist based on a word that was coined actually by a Palestinian author. Yeah, and I think quite appropriately, given what you've just said, frankly. <laughs> just a quick one on these various summits meetings that we've had in Negev, in Sharm el-Sheikh, both in April, which kind of follows on from the 2020 Abraham Accords and normalisation that we've talked about many times. So with regard to Israel's diplomatic relations, we've had all this these summits often described actually as long on symbols and short on promises. And I do recall looking at one article, I think post Negev, where all the leaders were linking arms rather uncomfortably. Um, t- tell me what the, what the point is of this. I know they're talking energy security, which is another issue as well as food security. And that has echoes of the Ukraine war obviously mm-hmm. going on right now. Iran nuclear deal, as you say, and Iran is now the bogeyman of the peace. I still can't get my head around where this is going, why... I'm stuck a bit here. It's very simple. It's an attempt by a few familiar faces, and it's always the same faces that are dealing with it. It started again with Trump when he tried to introduce the prophet Abraham into his politics, and he started his Abraham Accords. And with the Abraham Accords, suddenly we had United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and then we had Morocco, and then we tried to coax Sudan to come into the fold as well. Didn't work that well with Sudan, as we can see uh, today. And then you have the, the two principal initial earlier peacemakers with Israel, Egypt and Jordan. And what we're trying to do is to try and talk together, first of all, to do this energy and food security business, to try and create a front against Iran, because each of those countries has its own problems, and also get to have a counterweight. I mean, the whole idea of The United Arab Emirates, you talked about summits, but having the United Arab Emirates host Bashar al-Assad in the country, I mean, bringing him in from the cold when he's not even allowed to sit in at the Arab League, when he's a pariah when it comes to the West still, don't know how long that would last, when he basically has done so much to destroy his country. He is the first reference about what Russia can do before we came to the Ukraine. Look at what Russia did in Syria, then you can expect what Russia is doing today in Ukraine. So all this, and yet we bring uh, him in from the cold because the saying goes or the thinking goes. If we manage to wean him away from Iran and closer to us, the Arab fold, then we weaken Iran. I think Bashar al-Assad is too clever and he will basically sit on the fence and play both against each other. And so, in a sense, I call it political window dressing. 
with some personal friendships or understandings growing, which is always fine. That's where you start with conflict resolution. I mean, part of my work in life, in legal work, has been on conflict resolution. What your wife would know this, because she's a competent lawyer, alternative dispute resolution. So the whole point is forge relationships that might actually increase the amounts of trust that parties have. That would help them strike a deal because they trust each other more. But to sit there and do things which are inimical with the interests of Palestine, but focused only on Iran, interestingly enough, and again, some eyebrows would be raised now, a lot of people distrust Jordan's motives. I don't distrust Jordan's motives. First of all, I come from Jordan, so I have that umbilical cord with the country, even though I grew up in France, as you know. So I was a kid when I left the region. But more to the point, Jordan knows where its interests lie. And in a sense, when these people were having their meeting, one of their summits, where was the king of Jordan, Abdullah II? He was in Ramallah meeting with Abu Mazen, the Palestinian leader. That, to me, in a sense, that if you put those two images one next to the other, that pretty much tells you what is happening in the region. Now, we've promised to be somewhat disciplined, but I do want to ask you one final question. And actually, it, it does surround Iran's position. And this is me picking your brain because I'm interested, I'm going to say unashamedly. But we have this strengthening of, of relations, Israel, with various countries, as you've said. Part of me wonders if Iran is sort of probably a little bit furious with that. But on the other hand, thinking, hang on, is this such a bad thing? You know, if we're being demonized, can't we play the victim a bit here on the global stage? They could play the victim on the global stage if they had many friends. But they don't have too many friends for that to work. And the economy of Iran is pretty much flat. You know what? I sometimes wonder, I've said this when they released uh, the two British hostages recently, because finally, at long last, after so many prime ministers we had in this country, they finally decided, and foreign secretaries, this latest foreign secretary, she decided she wanted the kudos. So she basically persuaded the prime minister or whatever. You know what? We have those, uh, this debt that we owe Iran because of the tanks... From the late 70s, wasn't it? From the late 70s, from the Shah's time, Mm. when Iran had ordered tanks from the UK. The money was sent to the UK. The tanks were never delivered. And we were sitting on that money, using all sorts of pretexts why we shouldn't pay it back. When they released those two hostages, Nazanin was the one that really uh, splashed the headlines because she was the one known well because of the wonderful work that her uh, husband did in the case. But I always say if Iran were a little bit less ideological and a bit more pragmatic, Iran has a civilization that that whole region lacks. What could have been done? But no, it's not being done because at the moment, I'll give you an example. The economy of Iran is so bad that we are now during the holy month of Ramadan. It's the holiest month in Islam. It's the month when everybody is into eating, buying gifts, meeting people, etc., etc. Iranians can't afford it anymore. 
because they can't afford to go and buy because of their buying power has been diminished so much. Iran is in a very, very bad shape. But I'll give you one thing. For a country that is economically mutilated, it has managed to put up a wonderful pushback against the United States and the others in the JCPOA negotiations. And you wonder whether they are masochists, that they are willing to take so much pain for their principles or their interests or whatever it is. But it is time to go beyond that. And there again, the question is, as I was telling you a little bit earlier, there is hardly any trust between the peoples of the region, the rulers of the region. And therefore, there is always this interest in sort of making alliances against uh, Iran and making sure that Iran uh, doesn't overextend or overreach itself. And it is very much in Israel's interest to irrigate those fears in order to anchor itself more firmly in the region as the principal ally of some of those countries that are worried about Iran at a time when those rulers are worried that America is turning its back on them because America is more interested now in Russia and far more interested in China. And therefore, the Middle East is no longer that important. I mean, Biden is quite clear about that, the way he deals with the region. In a sense, this is where we are. And of course, at the moment with Israel, with the political upheavals that are taking place in the country with the resignation of Edith Sliman from the Yamina party, which incidentally is Naftali Bennett's, the prime minister's own party, and everything else that has happened with the attacks, terror attacks here, there. All this is leading up to this uncertainty that we are actually seeing at the moment. Well, I think it's that time now. We've talked about Ukraine. In fact, we've brought Ukraine in and made parallels with the conflict, actually, many times over the last half an hour. War crimes, refugees, civilian destruction, very harrowing to see those pictures. A switch in tactics from the Russians, a redeployment heavily towards the east. What's your take on this? Because it does feel like, on the one hand, a sort of European war... But we've talked about Ukraine being the breadbasket of Europe. We've talked about energy and, and Nord Stream 2 and the flow of, of, of oil, natural gas. We've done all this. And, and obviously there's an impact on MENA, something we covered last time too. Is this a global war or is it a regional war? To be honest, uh, James, it feels to me very much a European war, more than anything else. And I'll give you a very simple example. Only yesterday, let's go back, let's go to yesterday. What happened yesterday in Geneva? Russia was suspended from the UN Human Rights Council, which is another one of those sanctions promoted or defended or suggested by a lot of the EU countries and the UK now that we are gloriously Brexit country. Okay. So the United uh, Nations Human Rights Council. Now let's, let's examine what happened at that. The General Assembly, which consists of about 193, I think, nations, they voted on whether they suspend Russia or they don't suspend Russia. Let's examine the vote. 93 countries voted for suspending Russia. 24 countries voted against suspending Russia. 
and 58 countries abstained. And interestingly enough, I think without exclusion, all the Arab, MENA, and GCC countries, most of them abstained, and a couple of them, including, of course, Syria, opposed the suspension. Mm. Now, 92 in favor of suspension, 24 against, 58 abstained. Put the 58 and the 24 together, you've got 84 versus 93. Half the world wanted suspension, the other half didn't want suspension. And this, to me, is what is happening really in the world today. That we in Europe are becoming so fixated with Russia, as we were two, three years ago with China, that we were canceling all sorts of cooperation on iPhone technology and uh, everything else. Now we're so much fixated on Russia and sanctioning Russia and punishing Russia for its horrific things that it's doing in Ukraine, that we forget that people in the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf, people in Latin America, people in Africa, huge large continents which have a hugely impressive population, do not necessarily share our viewpoint. And this is why I think that this is much more we've become exercised because it's almost like we've been offended by the fact that how dare you wage a war against us Europeans. You do it in Iraq, you mess up the whole country, you do it in Syria, you totally ignore Turn the Palestinian issue, you let Yemen go to where it is today, which since 2015, that is seven years ago. Yeah. All this is, well, it's not in our neighborhood, or as I call my area, my backyard. It's somewhere else. It's different people. It's other priorities. Here, how dare Russia do this uh, to Ukraine uh, in, uh, in our continent, in our neighborhood? And this is why everybody's becoming exercised. This is why you open our television programs or the news on radio, etc. It's one person after another saying how bad the situation is and how can we punish Russia more. And then you've got President Zelensky, who's in the zone now, who's managed to find his mojo, and he's basically challenging everybody. He wants to cancel the United Nations. He's berating Germany for basically not speaking up. He's saying all manner of things against everybody who is not giving him what he wants. And the Polish and maybe one or two other East European countries are supporting him in that. Not mindful enough of what could happen if we really say, okay, you can have anything you want. Let's go to war against Russia. Then I would like to see what's going to happen to us when we really start to feel not the economic brunt, but the military brunt of the war between Russia and and the West. You see, what happened in the 19th, and I was talking to you about Bismarck and might is right. In the 19th and 20th century, wars were military warfares. You had the military. The Cold War was an example of keeping a balance between two military behemoths. What's happening in the 21st century? And what does Ukraine war show us? That there are countries like Russia, which still believe in that military dogma, versus 
European countries who don't believe in military warfare as much as they believe in economic warfare. So now the division is between military and economic. Can economic pounce and neutralize the military, or will the military be able to override the economic sanctions and considerations that we're doing? This is why, for instance, uh, Germany, Germany, people are now criticizing one of the leaders I really admire, uh, Angela Merkel, because she was apparently too soft on Putin and on Russia. Well, Germany has basically tried to work on the basis of two principles, trade versus security. And it was working during Angela Merkel's time to a large extent. And, of course, the need, as you mentioned yourself in your intro, about how much we in Europe and Germany, certainly Germany, Italy, Netherlands, other countries, Poland, need that energy, oil and gas coming from uh, Russia. That is now changing with uh, the new Chancellor Scholz. But what people forget when they talk to about Angela Merkel is that the real problems of putting up and cozying up, in a sense, between inverted commas with Russia, didn't start with her. It started with Gerhard Schroeder before her, who is now still refusing to resign his board position on Gazprom in Russia. He's one of the closest buddies uh, that uh, President Vladimir Putin has. So in a sense, this is where we are at the moment. And I think personally, that it is a very dirty war that is being waged. We in the West are not innocent virgins when it comes to dirty wars. We've got experience. Mm. And we're waging our own war by trying to put Russia in a box. And Russia still has its own Tsarist empire-driven thoughts. But... There are lots and lots of people. Now is not the time for me to start quoting people from Schmiermeier to all sorts of people who are basically saying, you know what, if we had discussed this a bit more seriously before the war broke out, we might be in a different place today. In fact, those people who are saying that, oh, NATO should go and attack, they should apply a no-fly zone, they should give this, that, and the other, my answer to them is, Sorry, that train has already left the platform. What NATO should have done is if NATO had placed its own presence in Ukraine before Putin started the war, that might have held him back. Now, in the middle of the war, to do this and risk an even bigger conflagration, which could even have tactical nuclear aspects to it, this is where we are. But given everything... I describe, because I'm a fan, fan is the wrong word because it's a positive word and the MENA region is not a positive region as far as I can see it today. But if I want to describe it, I would say that Ukraine is Russia's Iraq. And this is why when you talked about redeployment in your intro, yes, because they couldn't 
uh, get the capital. They couldn't get Kiev. Yes, we know all the atrocities. One of our best correspondents, uh, Jeremy Bone, is there. We've got so Yolande Nell, so many other people. Who've, the Lise Doucette has been there all the time. We've got Matt Fry from Channel 4 News. Everybody is there talking about what a wonderful war the Ukrainians are waging against Russia. Hold on. Have you seen the damage? So in a sense, Russia was stupid to think that they could just walk in and basically nobody is going to oppose them or that they could walk in and the Ukrainians are going to say, yes, welcome to Ukraine. What this war has done, it's honed the Ukrainian identity in a way that Putin would not have imagined possible. And it's going to be more difficult now for Ukraine to be neutral than before the war started. So yes, I end up again on this with the same idea. Ukraine is Russia's Iraq, because in Iraq, we messed it up. And in the process, we created other kinds of ogres from ISIS to whatever. Now, Russia is in there. And the way it wants to get out and maybe it wants to do it before the end of the month, is the wanton destruction and loss of human lives that's going to happen. So when Zelensky sits on his high horse and tells Europe you have to do this and that, when even somebody for whom I have incredible political regard Tobias, Elliot Tobias, says, oh no, we should go in there and exercise our right, I sort of think to myself, I've been involved, I've seen three wars closely. And war is not a cowboy film. It's dangerous, it's painful, and we should be careful what we're doing and what we're saying. And thankfully, till now, we've done a lot, which is great, but we haven't been foolhardy. And what we always say when we've talked over the last 12, 13 years on this podcast with regard to war and conflict, particularly in the Middle East, North Africa, is it's those innocent civilians in the middle, isn't it? We've seen it time and time again, whether it's barrel bombs, whether it's buildings being shelled and destroyed, schools, orphanages, you know, it's the suffering masses that get caught in the middle of all this, isn't it? I mean, those barrel bombs in in Syria, the, the, the way that Aleppo was raised to the ground or part of Aleppo was raised to the ground, That cannot be forgotten. That is part of history, what the president of Syria and the president of Russia together did in Syria. And it surprises us what's happening in Ukraine today. Absolutely. And, you know, you got me thinking a little bit, especially when you mentioned Germany, and I promise this is a very quick postscript, but we talk about the economic war versus the military might and the military war. But also it's a bit of an information war. And Zelensky's that's borne out actually by his use of social media, appealing directly to those countries, particularly in Europe and of course in America as well, a digital war. And to be honest, I think that's the third prong, isn't it? Economic war, military war, obviously, and digital too. Absolutely. I uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And yes, it is a digital war. And it's very interesting how the West now is managing to wage this digital war and how the PR 
that is being done that President Volodymyr Zelensky is now become I'm a celebrity star. He is the one who chooses where to talk and he, he hasn't left one European or Western Parliament he hasn't addressed. And he basically started slowly and built up and now he's basically wagging his finger at them and telling them you're not doing enough. You should do this for us and you should do that for us. Maybe I am stupid. Maybe I am naive. Maybe I'm a coward. Call me even an appeaser. But I don't like to see a war that will engulf this whole region just because we have some people on testosterone and just because so much vile crimes are being committed against the people of Ukraine. There are other people in the world. And when I tell you that the United Nations Human Rights Council was evenly divided between those who supported suspension, those who opposed it, and those who abstained, roughly divided. I gave you and our listeners the numbers. That, to me, says that there are people who are thinking in that way and saying, hold on, yes, this is bad, but, and that but is very important, I've learned through years and years of second track negotiations is very important when you're talking about negotiating with a person or introducing conflict resolution into a process. Harry, it's been fascinating as always and particularly a pleasure to sit opposite you. I Indeed. Say, and it does make a difference. It I does. Think. It a does big, make a, a difference. difference. I was looking at you with your eyes going up and down as I was talking and I knew uh, the measure of what I was saying, how it was impacting you. So it is, it is great to feel normal again. It's nice to sit here. And we went through this whole period without face masks either, James. <laughs> Hopefully the clarity of audio will attest to that. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's been my pleasure. So thank you for coming in. Thank you for your expertise, as always. And globetrotting aside, visits to the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf states aside, I hope you'll join us in May for another Middle East analysis. Harry, thank you so much. My pleasure.